Let's pray as we stand. Lord, may all of our days bring glory to your name. Father, we've just sung that your grace is a well too deep to fathom. We pray now as we come to your word that you may give us a drink from your well of grace, that we may see Christ even in the pages of this passage. Help us to hold on to him, we pray in his name. Amen. Please take your seats. We're dead. We're dead. We survived, but we're dead. These were the iconic words of Dash in the 2004 film, The Incredibles. He and his family had just miraculously survived a plane crash only to land in the middle of the ocean, where he then despairs that having survived one life-threatening event, or now and he and his family are going to drown. But even this next obstacle proves no problem for Dash and his family, because they're a family of animated superheroes. They're the Incredibles. Quick pep talk from mum, some determined teamwork, the magic of cinema, mean that the family can construct a makeshift boat that leads them safely to the shore. This is the Hollywood message of the culture we find ourselves immersed in, isn't it? Oh, you can do it. Oh, you can do, be anything that you want to be. You find yourself in a tough sitch, don't worry, you're incredible. You've just got to believe in yourself, just got to work hard enough, come together, and then you can overcome any obstacle that you face. And let's be honest, sometimes that Hollywood message can work. It can be motivational, it can be inspiring. But it certainly isn't liberating or freeing. In fact, it requires a great deal of hard work and effort. All the pressure and responsibility is on your shoulders. And so long as you're incredible and you succeed, all is well. But it's a message that offers us nothing in the face of failure. A message that offers us nothing when the obstacle that we face is one that we can't overcome. And it's a message that comes with an expiry date, too, because no matter how motivated you feel or how hard you work, that message doesn't give us a shred of comfort or confidence in the face of our greatest obstacle, our greatest enemy, death. So what do those of us who aren't animated superheroes do when we stare death in the face? What do we do when we face an enemy where no matter how super we are, how much teamwork we display, it, it won't change the outcome? What do we do about the enemy that we can't avoid? I think Exodus 14, verse 14, gives us a wonderful answer. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. As our passage in Exodus this evening exposes more of our futility in the face of death, as it maybe reveals many of our fears or our doubts, uh, my hope is it's going to show us a glorious and gracious solution. That though we may not be able to do anything in the face of death, we can trust our God who can. 
our God who offers a countercultural message that is truly liberating. Our God who doesn't ask anything of us other than to be still and trust that he fights for us. Three points this evening. Our first is our God who brings the desperate to dependence. I think we're dead, we're dead, we survived, but we're dead. That is a fair summary of how the Israelites are feeling during the first half of our chapter. Uh, Last week, we saw how God's mighty hand displayed at the Passover had brought the people out of Egypt. How he'd freed them from the slavery and the bondage that they had endured for so long. Uh, But then in our passage this week, we find the Israelites again in a truly desperate situation. Uh, In chapter 14, verse 2, we read that God had brought his people out of Egypt, uh, but that he had led them to a place where they found themselves stuck between the desert on one side and the sea on the other. Seemed like a weak plan. This this was a bad place to be. Uh, There were better routes that the Israelites could have taken to the promised land, and this seemed like a like a poorly planned detour. Uh, Then things get worse. In chapter 14, verse 5, Pharaoh and his officials say, what have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. It's a very sanitized way of saying it, isn't it? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. Pharaoh regrets letting his slave labor leave the country. Uh, And so he proceeds to go out with the very best of his army, the very best of his chariots, the equivalent of an ancient tank, with the intention to bring the slaves that he has lost back to Egypt and back to work again. Uh, To give them an ultimatum, come back to Egypt uh, or die on the seashore. How would you respond in such a desperate situation? How do the Israelites respond? Well, with fear, with doubt. In verse 11, they say to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? The irony is clear. Egypt still is known for its graves, pyramids, mummies, death rites. The ancient Egyptians were obsessed with death. The Israelites go on in verse 11 and 12. What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. And yet, the situation that the Israelites find themselves has all been part of God's sovereign plan. Chapter 13, verse 17, shows us that God had deliberately led them this way to a place where they were stuck between the desert and the sea. God wanted his people in a weak place. Chapter 14, verse 4, shows us that the Lord had been the one to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he would change his mind and pursue after them. Why? So that God would gain glory for himself through one final victory over Egypt. So that Pharaoh, all of his army, all of Egypt would be in no doubt that he is the Lord. So that his people would have yet another great story of his deliverance to remember. But at this point, all the Israelites can see is their enemy coming right for them 
and no escape routes. Uh, All they can see is their enemy's strength and their weakness. And, And so they conclude, God's abandoned us. Nancy Guthrie writes, they saw only two options, death or slavery. They did not see God. When actually the reality is that God had been with them the whole time. He he was still with them. Chapter 13, 21 and 22. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way. And by night, in a pillar of fire to give them light. So that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night, left its place in front of the people. The Israelites changing circumstances. Uh, It meant their eyes had dropped. Their eyes are now firmly fixed on the enemy pursuing them rather than on the Lord. At the first sign of trouble, their thoughts have become consumed by fear rather than remembering their Lord is with them day and night. Their changing circumstances have led them to immediately doubt rather than remembering all that the Lord has just done for them in Egypt. And yet by the end of our chapter, look how the Israelites respond. Chapter 14, verse 31. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Uh, In this chapter, God does something that takes his people's doubts in him and in his prophet Moses that turns their doubting into trust. God's actions in our passage transform their fear of man into a fear of the Lord. Uh, And what do his people have to do? Believe a little more? Work a little harder? Chapter 14, verse 13 to 14. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. God is incredibly kind and gracious to his people here and to us today. He doesn't say, right, You want me to save you. Could you up your trust levels a little bit more? Then I'll act. Uh, He doesn't say, come on, team. If you just fight really hard, if you just believe, I'm sure you can defeat their chariots. No, this is our God. He says, be still. I see your doubting and your desperation. I see your fumbling and your fear. I see your unbelief and your unworthiness, but I'm going to save you anyway. I will do it all. I will fight for you. All you need to do is be still. And as you still, as you see what I do, you won't be able to help but respond in fresh dependence to me. It's the same for us. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God doesn't deliver his people from death and desperation because they depended on him in a big way. He delivers his people from death and desperation so that they might respond by depending on him. That is the pattern, Old Testament and new. And this is exactly what God does. Point two, our God who brings the evil to an end. 
Uh, the comedian James Acaster offers this reflection on humanity. Someone's the worst person in the world, and they don't even know it. Someone is. Someone's the worst person in the whole world, and we have no way of knowing who it is. I mean, it's definitely a man. No one's arguing that. But aside from that, we have precious little to go on. I don't know what you've made of Pharaoh so far in the book of Exodus, but he is surely up there as the worst. As Rue has mentioned in previous weeks, the Pharaoh in Exodus, he is the representation of evil. He is the snake-like figure that dominates the book of Exodus. The Pharaoh's genocidal, drowning newborn babies on the basis of their people group and gender. He builds his country upon harsh slave labor, then brings his country to ruin because of his stubbornness and his pride, lies at almost every opportunity, and then he has the audacity to ask Moses to bless him when kicking the Israelites out of the country before changing his mind again. And so now in verse 15 to 18, God reveals his plan to deal with him once and for all. God is going to bring the waters of judgment crashing down on him. If you've read the book of Genesis, then you'll know in Genesis 6, God had brought a flood on the whole world because humanity and their hearts had been just so evil. And he promised not to flood the, world, the whole world again. But now, because Pharaoh had become so evil, his heart had become so hard, that God was going to bring the floodwaters crashing down on him. We've already seen God's ten plagues of decreation that Rue walked us through, but this final act of decreation, at this eleventh plague, if you like, where the waters merge together, is going to bring Pharaoh and his evil reign of terror to an end. And this is what happens. God fights for his people. In verse 19 and 20, the angel of the Lord moves and comes between the Egyptians and the Israelites. The angel of the Lord delays the Egyptians' advance until just the right moment. God divides the waters into two walls by sending a strong wind, same word for spirits, and dry ground appears. Israel walked through Egypt are on the shore, maybe follow in, thinking that victory must be close. But then, verse 23 to 25, the Egyptians pursued them. And all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. The Egyptians know now that they've entered a trap. That this is the Lord. They try to run to turn around, but now repentance is too late. God's plan, though it had looked weak to the Israelites, though it may have seemed a bit illogical, it worked exactly as he said it would. God's seemingly weak plan was revealed in all of its true strength and glory. And then, verse 26 to 28, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. 
The Egyptians were fleeing toward it and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. At daybreak was when the Egyptians were meant to be at their strongest. The sun would rise, and the sun god, Ra, would reveal his great strength at that time. But no, that doesn't happen. Instead, the Lord sweeps away Pharaoh and his army, showing again that he is the Lord, not this phony idol, Ra. And even though we know how evil Pharaoh has been, uh, even though we know his army would have been one of the key instruments of his oppression, these verses still make for sober reading, don't they? Flood imagery is always a warning of judgment, a, a picture of God's final judgment that's to come in the future. And it sounds heavy, but, but deep down, we long for this, for all the evil out there to be washed away, for justice to be done, for our news feeds to be clean, for the pharaohs of this world to be unmade and undone. Only when the Lord does eventually return to judge the world, it will be a day where he washes away all evil. The evil out there and the evil in here. So how can anyone be saved? we've all contributed to the evil of this world how can any of us come through the waters of God's judgment as those who are cleansed instead of killed how did the Israelites our final point our God who brings the still to salvation the same waters that destroy the Egyptians lead God's people to salvation at the same waters that bring the evil to an end bring the still to salvation. Why? Why does God save the Israelites and not the Egyptians? Well, as we saw from our first point, it clearly wasn't because of the strength of the Israelites' faith. God saved them in spite of a pretty weak faith. If we keep reading on in Exodus, we'll see that he can't have saved them because they were morally better than the Egyptians either. They're they're not saved because they're good people. Just keep reading the Bible. They, they go on to commit many of the evils and the sins that Pharaoh did. So why can the Israelites come through the waters of God's judgment unscathed? Why does God save the Israelites and not the Egyptians? I've really enjoyed this part. Tim Keller suggests it is because the Israelites had a mediator, a man in the middle, Moses. I wonder, did you notice anything strange about the start of verse 15? In verse 15, God says to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. It's the Israelites that have been crying out and complaining. It's the Israelites who doubt and question God. And yet God seems to rebuke Moses on their behalf. He says, why are you crying out to me? Uh, Moses doesn't seem to have done anything wrong here. And yet he is a man so identified with the people that he is rebuked for their sin. Their guilt is upon him. And then in verse 21, Moses is also the one who parts the sea. 
God tells Moses to raise up his staff, and then through him comes all of God's power. The seas are driven back as God's spirit works through Moses. The Israelites are led through to safety. Moses is also so identified with God that God's power flows through him. Tim Keller says, Moses is the man in the middle. He's so identified with the people that he gets rebuked for their sin, and he's so identified with God that he's a vehicle for God's saving power. But guess what? I know a better mediator. And I'll tell you what, in Jesus Christ, we don't have a mediator who is fully man and close to God. We have a mediator who is fully man and fully God. And not only that, we don't have a mediator who was rebuked for one sin in one verse on the cross. Jesus Christ was thrown into that ocean of God's wrath. God can bring the Israelites through the waters of his judgment because they have a mediator in Moses. God can bring us through the waters of his final judgment because we have a greater mediator in Jesus. And what did they need to do to benefit from their mediator's work? What, what do we need to do in order to have a share in Jesus' work? Verse 14, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Being still in this situation, it, it probably would have been harder than it sounds. Their enemy is right in front of them. They are fearful, and so to be still is to exercise faith in God's word. Uh, to be still was to recognize that there was nothing that they could do that was going to contribute to saving themselves. And to instead throw themselves on God in faith, trusting that he would do all of the work of salvation through his mediator. Whilst his people were still, God fought for them. Whilst they were still, he parted the sea. Whilst they were still, God did all the heavy lifting. He did all the work, all that was necessary. And then once he had done everything for them, what did the Israelites need to do? They needed to continue to trust God, to continue to have faith, faith to walk through the waters that God had parted. Faith that meant that they would be saved because of the work that God had done through his mediator, Moses. If we want to come through the waters of God's judgment unscathed, if we want God to save us from our greatest enemies, sin and death, then the response is the same for us today. Jesus has done all of the work of salvation through his life, death and resurrection and the way that we share in his work is by faith in what he has done. And it's at this point that someone might respond, ah, you've said that salvation's all down to God and his mediator. You just need to be still. Uh, But then you've gone on to say that you've got to have faith, don't you? To believe. And you've really got to believe with all your heart because salvation is by faith. Not such a liberating message after all. Tim Keller again. The Israelites all crossed over. That doesn't mean that they all crossed over with the same disposition. Some walked through marveling at the walls of water. Wow, look at that. God is on our side. Eat your heart out, Egyptians. The Lord is fighting for us. 
Others were probably walking through like this. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And yet, they all crossed over. Individual Israelites had different qualities of faith, but they were all equally saved. They were equally delivered. Why? Because you are not saved because of the quality of your faith. You are saved because of the object of your faith, the Redeemer, the God who is fighting for you. Everything about this text says grace, 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 grace. Crossing over is by grace. The Lord leads his people, takes them from certain death on the seashore or a slow and miserable death back in Egypt through the waters of judgment to salvation and safety, through the waters to dry ground, and he did so by grace. Isn't that a much more liberating message than Hollywood's, than our cultures, than than any other world religion? Because instead of living each day by a crushing, if you work harder, if you believe hard enough, if you're incredible enough, then maybe, just maybe, you'll make it. For those that trust in our God, for those who put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are those who can live by a message of, it is finished. I've done it. Even if you're not worthy, even if you're not incredible, even if you are burdened under the weight of your sin, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Our God offers us a message that depends on him and gloriously not on us. Our God offers us a salvation that has already been achieved through his son, Jesus Christ, the one who passed through the waters of death at the cross, but who came through the waters to dry land when he was raised from the dead in power. The one who offers us eternal life with the God who fights for us and loves us. If we will only be still and have faith that he has triumphed over the enemy that we could never have defeated on our own. This is our God. This is the God of the Bible, Old and New Testament alike. And isn't he the kind of God you want to follow? Isn't he the kind of gracious God that you'd want to put your faith in, who asks you only to be still, the Lord, who's worthy of all of our worship, the Lord who can bring us through the waters of death, the Lord who alone can rescue. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you offer us yourself. That you are the Lord who will fight for us if we will only be still. Father, we find it hard to be still in our culture, in our lives. We like to be busy, we like to do things ourselves. So Lord, help us to be still this evening. Trusting that salvation is only through faith in you, in what you have done in your son, the Lord Jesus. Help us to rest in him this evening. For the first time or afresh, we pray. Yeah, in your name, amen.